Well, this morning we are returning back to 1 Timothy 5, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there, and if you don't have a Bible, you can probably find one in the pew in front of you, and uh, we are going to be looking some more at this section on widows indeed. Uh, this week I came back, I was had a dirt digging vacation around my house, and had a great time pouring concrete and doing block walls, and and uh, I came back and I saw on the marquee that uh, the sermon title, which was uh, supposed to be for two weeks ago, was there. And uh, I had to tell Ruth that, no, it's Widows Indeed Part 4. But I said, we'll probably finish up this Sunday, but we're not. <laughs> so relaxed. We'll be coming back some more. But there's so much good information in this passage. And um, I think uh, many of you have commented how, you know, you, you get to a passage like this and you're thinking to yourself... What's in this passage for me? And then when you dig a little deeper, you start realizing there's some good stuff in here. There's some really good stuff in here. And I think this morning we are going to find some more good stuff. Stuff that will apply to all of us and not just those who are widows or widows indeed. And we've come to the text, and because the text is divided up into all sorts of categories, it addresses different categories of people, different widows. It addresses um, uh, you know, what the church is supposed to do and families are members supposed to do and what widows are supposed to do and not to do and all these things. We've, we've broken it up into six categories, and we've asked questions about the text. And so far, we have learned what it means to honor widows indeed which means to give them respect and to treat them with reverence and also to support them financially. And we aren't going to go into detail. If you want to find out more about these and you haven't been here, you can get the tapes. Secondly, we have um, learned what makes a widow a widow indeed. What is the difference between a regular widow and a widow indeed? And we discovered 11 characteristics found in the text, characteristics which describe the behavior of pretty much every person who is a believer. It's not uh, the Proverbs 31 superwoman who has become a widow. No, this woman is your average Christian. In other words, Paul is saying, before you put them on the list, make sure they meet up to these 11 uh, criteria. And all of them, but two, are criteria that all of us as believers are to apply to our own life. The only two that don't apply are, you know, not less than 60. And, of course, time will take care of that one. And then there's the other one, which is uh, left all alone, and only God's providence can bring us that. But all the rest were applicable not only to um, widows in general, but to all of us. Third, we uh, learned what all widows were responsible not to do. And the text listed six um, pursuits or six kinds of behavior or six kinds of sins that... Uh, widows might be especially tempted to commit. And uh, we went over that two weeks ago and uh, looked at those kinds of behaviors. And this morning we come to the fourth question that we have asked of the text, namely, what are widows who are not widows indeed responsible to do? Now this morning we are going to focus on the positive pursuits rather than the negative aspect, the positive aspect. So what is a widow, especially a younger widow who is not a widow indeed, what should she be pursuing? I mean, should she just stay single all her life? I mean, what does God want of that? And what's neat about this is God, um, through the Apostle Paul, is trying to instruct the church 
about widows, and he does it in a very masterful way by contrasting both positive and negative characteristics of widows and positive and negative pursuits of widows. And so this morning we come to this fourth question, what are widows who are not widows indeed responsible to do? What sorts of things are they to be pursuing? So if you have your Bible, you can look at 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 3 and follow along. We will read the context of the whole passage addressing widows and widows indeed, and then we will look at verse 14 as our single verse for today, which we will find some really great stuff that will apply to all of us in general, but especially um, younger widows and, and singles in general, as we shall see. Paul says this, Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she, who is a widow indeed, and who has been left alone, has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well, so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having the reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires and disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle and they, as they go about from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have turned aside to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them. And the church must not be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. Now look at verse 14. This, this single verse is just loaded. Paul says, therefore, that is, he has just contrasted the negative behavior of widows. Now he's giving the positive things they should pursue. Therefore, in contrast to that, I want, and we'll just stop there for a second. He says, I want because he is not making a command here. There is no command in the Greek. He is just saying, I want or wish or will this to be the case. Now, you can imagine why he didn't command. You know, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to having children, those are kind of not things you command. Those are kind of things that lie in the realm of God's providence. And so Paul is not stating an option here. He is saying this is the course you should pursue every time, but he doesn't put it in a command because it also integrates with God's providence and sovereign will for your life. So he says, um, therefore I want, and he lists Four activities a younger widow is to pursue as the standard pursuit of her life. 
And uh, just so you know, some of you who are out there going, well, I'm not a, a widow and a younger widow, so I'm going to fall asleep. Don't fall asleep yet. <laughs> there is some things in here that you need to know. So he lays out these positive and negative aspects and we learn these four important truths. Look at the text and notice what he says. These are the four things Paul wishes or wants or wills for these younger widows. First, Paul says, I want younger women to get married. Secondly, he says that being married, they should bear children. Third, he says they are to keep house. And fourth, Paul gives a general reason or pursuit, which is to strive for a lifestyle that gives the enemy no occasion for reproach. Now, again, he has just said, don't live this wicked way. Now he is saying, live this godly way. This is the divine standard that God is telling Paul, inspired through the Holy Spirit, to lay out for the general course of a younger widow in the church. The solution is, get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. Now, let's just look at this first, first little um, statement here. Um, if you are a Christian, um, you need to get married. Paul says, if you are a widow, a Christian, get married. Uh, you, this is your normal pattern um, of that you're supposed to pursue. But, you know, that is a pretty easy thing to say. And some of you who are single are saying, hey, I know something different. I've been looking for a long time and I can't find anybody. Just how do you obey this exhortation to get married? I mean, this doesn't apply to just younger widows, but to any single person who wants to get married. And so right now we want to look at this in a little more detail because this is something that I think a lot of people just don't have any clue about. I mean, you know, you know, in the movies you find somebody and fall in love with them at the blink of an eye and then you get married and live happily ever after. But reality is that finding a godly person, somebody that is is God's person for you, is very difficult. And uh, some of you can attest to that. And you're out there going, Amen. Um, so how do you find the right person? What are the biblical directives? What biblical principles might apply to a single person, a younger widow or any single person, finding um, a spouse that they can marry? Well, let me give you six criteria that you can apply to wife or husband getting. First, if you are a Christian, you can only marry another believer. If you are a Christian, you can only marry another believer. You can't marry anyone else except a believer. And to show you this, we're going to take you to a few texts. Turn to 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which if you've read through Corinthians or studied it all, you know that chapter 7 is a text where Paul addresses many issues related to marriage. And in this context, Paul is, just so happens to be addressing widows, women whose husbands have died. And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39. He says, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Now notice that a widow who is now a single woman, there's several things, can get married again. It's okay to get married again. 
Secondly, she can marry whomever she wishes. Now, this doesn't mean she can disregard the word of God, but I mean living within the parameters of what the word of God says, she can marry whomever she wants, which means she doesn't have to have an arranged marriage. She doesn't just have to go out there and just find somebody. This text is not advocating just get married for a marriage. Just find some desperate person and latch up with them. It's not saying that. No, but you do have freedom. You have a choice. You don't need to marry anyone you don't want to marry. Third, that you can only marry somebody who is, notice the end of the verse, in the Lord, which means a Christian. You can get married, but it has to be in the Lord. Now, why does Paul say this? I mean, what's the big deal? Well, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here, we have a text which helps us understand why Paul would say something like this. And we'll look at a couple more texts. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33 and 34. Now, the context of this passage is the resurrection. And what had happened is, is some people who had come into Corinth and introduced false doctrines about the resurrection, and then those false doctrines gave rise to wicked behavior, which always happens. You, you adopt false doctrine, you adopt wicked behavior. And so what happens is, is Paul says um, this to these people because he is pointing out the source of, of their false doctrine and why they were led into wicked behavior. And he says this in verse 33. Look there. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Now, this is one of the five places in the New Testament where, where the scriptures say, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived into what? Into believing that you can hang around with bad company and not be corrupted by them. Well, what does he mean by company? It's talking about close companionship, intimate relationships. Do not have close or intimate relationships with people because, who are unbelievers because they will corrupt you. They will corrupt you. And notice in verse 34, he gives the solution to those who have become company with bad company. And notice what he says, become sober minded as you ought, which is a, a Greek word, which means waken up from your drunken fit. Sober up and quit being deceived into thinking that your close relationships with these unbelievers are not going to corrupt you. Now, mind you, Jesus did spend time with unbelievers for the purpose of calling them to repentance, not for having fun and participating in their evil deeds. So, I just throw that out because somebody came up after service and asked me about it. So, he says, sober up as you ought. And notice, stop sinning. What is their sin? Hanging around with bad company, having close companionship with bad company. He says, for some have no knowledge of God. This is his definition of bad company. They have no knowledge of God. So they are what? Unbelievers. And he says, I speak this to your shame. In other words, what are you doing having these kind of relationships? So if you were to apply this text, you could not date and then eventually marry an unbeliever because that would be an intimate relationship leading to a more intimate relationship and it would be a direct violation of what the word of God says here. 
Paul explains that this bad company has no knowledge of God. You would be um, uniting yourself with a child of Satan, with somebody who is spiritually dead, with somebody who is walking according to the prince of the power of the air, with somebody who hates God and cannot please God and cannot understand the things of God because they do not have the spirit of God. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul addresses a similar situation. And here, in 2 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 14, what happened is, is some people had entered into the church at Corinth and they were attacking Paul, attacking um, some of his doctrines and trying to undermine his authority in the church as an apostle. And so Paul has to give them this stern command. It is, do not be bound together with unbelievers. And then he asks a series of rhetorical questions, all which have the same implied answer. For what partnership have righteousness with lawlessness? Implied answer, none. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? None. Or what harmony has Christ with Belial, another name for Satan? None. Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? None. And he says, for we are a temple of the living God, implied they are not. Just as God says, I will dwell in them, but not in unbelievers, and walk among them. And I will be their God, but not unbelievers. And they shall be my people, but not unbelievers. Therefore, come out from their midst, that is, the unbelievers, and be separate from them. The unbelievers, why, says the Lord, and do not touch which is unclean, and I will welcome you, quoting the Old Testament. The whole point is this, when it comes to any relationship which involves spirit, a spiritual dynamic, you cannot have or be bound with an unbeliever. Now, if it was a business deal and it didn't involve um, you know, spiritual things, that would be fine. But when it comes to dating, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to just hanging with people for the purpose of having companionship, you cannot... Be hanging around them. Why? Because they will corrupt you. And if you think they won't, you are deceived. Because the Bible says, don't be deceived. They will corrupt you. So it is clear from the scriptures that a Christian can only marry another Christian. Never an unbeliever. Now... That's the first thing. So, you're single, or you're a widow, young widow, you want to get married, you go out, you make sure someone's a Christian. That's the first thing. Secondly, they must be a believer, and not only a believer, but a believer who has not had an unbiblical divorce. In our day and age, divorce is pretty rampant, and... And a lot of times people, because they have gone to churches that have not taught the word of God, or maybe they've just rebelled because it's a thing to do or whatever, um, you, you might meet somebody and find out they've been divorced. Can you marry them? Well, first you have to run them through the biblical grid and find out whether they have had a biblical divorce or not. Now, this is going to be quite the rabbit trail, but this is pretty fun. The scriptures make it clear that you can only marry a believer... And that believer could not be one who has had an unbiblical divorce. But what is that? Well, let's look at some some scriptures. Look at Matthew 5. Matthew chapter 5. This is towards the the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus touches on um, what it means to be eligible and not eligible after divorce. 
And he says this, Matthew 5, and we'll look at verse 31 and 32, where he says, Whoever sends, and it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. He's quoting what, partially what the Old Testament says and what the Pharisees who are there listening have understood and taught the people. He says in verse 32, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity or immorality, makes her commit adultery. That is, when she gets remarried. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Turn over to Matthew 19. Matthew chapter 19. Here is the case where the Pharisees come up to Jesus and they want to know if it's okay if you can divorce a woman for any reason at all. And they're trying to pit him against a couple different views that were prominent in that day. And this is what Jesus says. This is, again, just verse 19 or verse 9 of, of chapter 19 of Matthew And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So in these two texts, Jesus gives an exception. The exception is, is if you are married and your spouse commits adultery on you, you can, but are not required to, but you have an out, but you don't have to, get a divorce. The high road would be to be like Hosea, who, although his wife was extremely unfaithful over and over again, still pursued her, bought her back from slavery, and continued to love her, which represented God's love for Israel as they continually went astray after other gods. And yet, even though they played the harlot with other gods, he bought them back and would redeem them um, for his own people. So, that's an exception. Turn to Mark chapter 10, which is... um, Very clear, the exception is not in this text, just uh, the statement uh, about marrying a divorced person. Mark 10, verse 11 and 12. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her, And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Jesus makes it clear that it is wrong to marry any believer who has had an unbiblical divorce, for it is to commit adultery. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, turn there, back to 1 Corinthians 7. If you have a new Bible, we're breaking it in today. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15. We have seen that adultery is one legitimate exception for divorce, and here is another one. Paul here is speaking of a woman, a believer, who has been abandoned by an unbelieving husband. And he says this, Yet... If the unbelieving one leaves, that is, leaves the marriage, let him leave. Now, this is a command. Paul is saying, listen, you Christian women, you have an unbelieving husband. That unbelieving husband hates you and hates your Christianity and wants out of the marriage. I command you to let him leave. He goes on to say, The brother or sister is not under bondage. That word bondage there means bondage to the marriage 
covenant in such cases, but God has called you to peace. In other words, you are free from the bondage of the marriage covenant, therefore you could remarry. This is clearly um, what Paul has in mind because he uses that and it appeared in a couple of the verses we already read so far. But if you were to turn to Romans chapter 7 verses 2 and 3, Paul uses marriage as an illustration to describe how, how we have been freed from the law. He says, he says, just as Christ died have to free us from bondage to the law, so in marriage, it's the same way. So he uses marriage as an illustration. And this is what he says in Romans 7, 2 and 3. For the married woman is bound. Now, there is the same word that he uses in 1 Corinthians 7, 15, bondage. She is bound, same terminology, by law to her husband while he is living. Notice that the marriage here is assumed that it's for life. The Bible never assumes that marriage is for temporary Till you try it out to see if it works and then you can get a divorce. No, it's always till death. He says, he says here, but if her husband dies, she is released. That is released from what? Released from bondage. What bondage? Bondage to the marriage covenant from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man... She shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. So we know that when Paul talks about not being under bondage, he is talking about not being under bondage to the marriage covenant. So the two exceptions are you're a believer. And your wife or husband commits adultery on you. You have the option of getting divorced, although you are not commanded to do so. The higher road would be to go ahead, work it out, try and persevere. But sometimes your spouse commits adultery over and over again, and it just isn't going to work out because they're entrenched in that sin. So you say, all right, that's one reason. The other reason is, is, is you talk to somebody, you're dating somebody, you find that they've been divorced, and how did it come about? Well, um, my husband was an unbeliever, my wife was an unbeliever, they hated me, they hated Christianity, and they finally left, and, and we got a divorce. Okay. Those people would still be eligible for remarriage. Now, not only that, and, um, and this is, you know, you have to go through this. Being an elder is so fun, because you get to deal with all these things that you wish there was just a specific instruction in the Bible about. Sometimes you have, let's say, a couple believers. Um, and they are believers. We'll just assume they are. They're, 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 they're going to a church, but maybe the church doesn't teach the Word of God. You know, it's just a total feel-good church, and, and they aren't really getting trained, and, you know, they don't say anything, but God loves you. And so th it doesn't work out. And, and you know, they're, they're having struggles, and they can't get good counsel, so they end up getting a divorce. And, of course, because now they're both in the same church and they're divorced, they both go to different churches. And at those different churches, maybe they get some good training. And now they've discovered, whoa, we have had an unbiblical divorce. We need to get back together. But by that time, one of them has been remarried. Now, in that case, the person who is not married would have had adultery committed to, against them by the person who has gotten remarried. And so they would then be free to remarry. Because they couldn't 
break up that other relationship in order to get remarried. And you're thinking, do you really have to deal with this? All the time. This is an easy one. I mean, we have, I have stories that are just, I had a person call me up and say, yeah, you know, I got separated and, and this person over here, um, that my husband, you know, went and married this other woman and now he was married to both and all three of us, by the grace of God, have come to salvation and we want to know what to do. I don't know. The Bible doesn't give that scenario, you know. I keep thinking of that thing, you know, let each man remain in the condition in which he was called. Um, but anyways... So that would be a case. And the reason you ask, well, why, you know, if you, why couldn't that person go back? Why shouldn't you tell these people to get a divorce or whatever? Well, the answer is in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. You can turn there if you want. And this um, tells us what to do when a woman is divorced and, and, and then she remarries and what she can and can't do. Moses writes, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, and if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former husband, that is the first husband, who sent her away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin upon the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. The mathematical formula is this. If there is A plus B, then A minus B, then B plus C, then A plus B cannot happen again. Now, all of these things you have to apply. So if you are a single person and you know you want to get married and you are eligible to get married and you start talking to somebody and you find out they've been divorced, you must discern whether or not they are really eligible to get divorced or not. Because if you go and marry them, you may enter into a permanent state of adultery. And that's not good. Third, so you want to get married. So you make sure the person's a believer. You make sure they are eligible to be married and haven't had an unbiblical divorce. Third, they must be a believer who is not just a believer by profession, but also by life transformation. And let me explain what I mean by that. You know, a common situation in the ministry is this. You know, a young lady meets this guy, and he's cute. And um, he says... He's a Christian. You know, maybe he meets her at work or in the neighborhood or whatever, at some get-together or whatever. And so the guy says he's a Christian and understands she's a Christian because when she asks him one of the first questions, he says, yes. And she goes, oh, great, so am I. So the guy then knows she's real hot on this Christian thing. So she brings him to church and they attend faithfully for maybe two or three months and then they make an appointment to see me about getting married. And so, upon questioning them both, I find out, you know, maybe the girl is a Christian and the guy is 
Obviously not. He has no idea of what the gospel is. He has no idea how to be saved. He has never had a history of walking with the Lord. He has no uh, present uh, reality of any godly disciplines in his life except merely going to church. He has never served in the church. He has never found out what his spiritual gift is. He has never given to the Lord's work. He is an unbeliever now who has captured the heart of an undiscerning young Christian lady. And of course, then comes the hammer. And that is when I say, listen, pal, I've got some good news and bad news for you. Um, the bad news is, is you don't know Jesus. The good news is you can know Jesus. And I share the gospel with them. And I share the gospel with them. And then I often discover also that because he is an unbeliever, because he doesn't really have a biblical morals, he has led this lady into sexual immorality. And then I go through the scriptures and I explain what the Bible says about immorality and those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And I lay that all out for them. And then this is what usually happened. The girl looks very distraught. The guy, he gets angry. So they leave. And they go to another church where they find some pastor who does not question them thoroughly, who does not probe into their life, who does not want to ask them detailed questions about their salvation, and he is willing to take their lip service to Christ as genuine salvation, and so he marries them. And then what happens is, is after the marriage, the man, who has never had a passion for God because he's spiritually dead, is is tired of living this hypocritical Christian life, and so he decides to go back to being the same worldly guy he was before he ran into his wife. The wife then is distraught. She realizes that she has married the wrong guy, that she's made this huge mistake and, and sinned against the scriptures. And now she has sworn a solemn oath to stay married to this guy until death in the presence of God and many witnesses. And she has to live with her decisions. She goes to church by herself. Later, they may have children, and those children are pulled between two differing worldviews. They are pulled between two differing belief systems, between two different standards of righteousness and morality and lifestyle. And in worst-case scenarios, the husband finally wears away on his wife, and she becomes worldly in order to keep peace in the family. And this is bad. And so I tell you this, you who are singles, to not just pick somebody because they're cute. And don't be like Samson who told his parents, get her for me, she looks good. <laughs> do not do that. Don't be like the Benjamites who you know, hid in the bushes at the dance and went and just grabbed a wife. No, you ask questions. Sure, get the profession and find out if there is a history, a reality of somebody who loves the Lord. Do they love the Lord? Do they want God's glory more than anything else? Are they passionate about reading the word, about obeying the word, about serving and being involved in church and doing all those things that Christians do? Are they merely just Christians by profession? God would forbid you to marry anyone who is merely a hearer of the word and not a doer, a person who has deceived and deluded themselves by professing a Christ that they are unwilling to submit to. Bad company will corrupt your good morals. Fourth, so, you find somebody who's a believer, somebody who hasn't had an unbiblical divorce, and somebody who is not just giving lip service to Christ. 
That is, they must be walking with the Lord. And this is kind of the flip side of the coin. And the reason I say this is this. There are people, when you question them, seem to have a good testimony. They have the right answers. They tell you the right thing. They, they seem to be believers. They even have a history of maybe going to church, of being raised in a Christian family, and on and on. And yet, right now in their life, they aren't walking with the Lord. Now, what do you do in that one? Well, if they're living in unrepentant sin then you have a responsibility as a believer to confront them and tell them to turn from their sin. If they are unwilling to repent of their sin, then you cannot associate with them. I mean, you can read 1 Corinthians 5. Do not associate with any so-called brother if they be an immoral person. Do not even eat with such a one. Remove the wicked man from among yourself. So you could not continue a relationship with somebody you couldn't even speak to, now could you? And so if you are a single person and you start dating somebody and you find out they're entrenched in all these sins, and I mean, we're all sinners. But some people sin and they enjoy it and they don't want to turn from it and they aren't repentant. And if you are, encounter somebody like that, do not consider having a relationship with them because it will be to violate the word of God. Fifth. They would need to be a believer of like faith or doctrinal conviction. You know, at times a couple, and we'll just assume they're believers, might come into the office, and they're, you know, they're, they seem to love the Lord, and, you know, I ask them questions, and, you know, they're, they got good, solid testimonies. They're both trusting in Christ to save them. They both believe that, you know, Jesus died on the cross for their sins, that they can't save themselves, and on and on. And, and they really have a great, um, you know, testimony, and that's fine. And then upon a little more investigation, you know, she's charismatic, Pentecostal, um, premillennial, um, you know, Armenian, evangelical Methodist. And I talked to him, and he is, you know, um, Orthodox, Presbyterian, Reformed, Amillennial, Calvinist. And I just say, you cannot pursue this relationship. Why? Because what's going to happen here? Well, are they going to go to, you know, the United Reformed Church or the Free Methodist Church? You see, a relationship like this will force one or both to sin against their conscience. And to sin against your conscience is to sin against God. In order to make peace and, quote, show love towards the other person, they are willing to drop their doctrinal standards or submit to doctrine they don't believe in. And in so doing, they're committing idolatry because they're sinning against their conscience when God says, don't do it. And so that would not be a good situation. I mean, they may, they may love the Lord, and there is truth. And there is one faith, one Lord, and one baptism. But if you can't be- agree on what that one Lord, one faith, and one baptism is, then you shouldn't pursue the relationship, because what will usually happen is the woman who wants to submit to her husband, if they go ahead and get married, um, goes to a church she can't stand, listens to sermons she can't stand, and doctrines she can't stand, and is just miserable. Always sinning against her conscience in order to please her husband. Six. This is the sixth criteria. And this is probably the most important one. And the most often neglected one for those who are trying to find a spouse. 
People who want to get married need to, instead of looking for that right person first, they need to be the right person first. People who want to get married often have very high expectations for the person they want to marry, but very low expectations of themselves. You know, the guy wants the super godly, gorgeous, you know, girl with a doctrine in theology. And yet he is not so curvy. He's rather round. And he is not so godly either. And he is not anything like he needs to be to even think he should even, if he found one of those, if she was smart, she would say, later. You see, what, what needs to happen is, is, is singles need to work at being the right person because God can bring the right person into your life. But if you, are, if you aren't the right person, then he's going to be waiting until you become that person. One of the most important ways to find the right person is to be the right person. And ladies, a quality man will be looking for a quality woman. He will be looking for a history of your service in the church. He will be asking you about your devotions. He will be asking you about your doctrinal convictions. He will want to know about your character. Of course, a worldly guy who has worldly standards will want to look at your body, want to look at what you look like on the outside. And that to him will be the most important thing. And so, ladies, whatever you do, don't use your body to lure some guy in because you'll catch a fish that is a trash fish. And then what happens is, is this ungodly guy that you have lured to yourself by ungodly means will be an anchor to your walk with the Lord rather than a wind to blow you to heaven. And so, singles, younger widows, you can apply these principles to your husband or wife getting, and they will greatly increase your chances of finding somebody who will be a great blessing to you. Now, there's one qualifier I'm just going to throw in here. This is not a principle. It's just true. God is sovereign. You will never be married before God wants you to be married. And when he wants you to be married, you're going to find the right person. He can bring that person into your life today. But you know... I don't know why. I'm not God. He waits sometimes. But I, I have heard testimonies. I have known people who had old maid syndrome, you know, since they were 21. You know, and they were fretting and they were worrying. And every single one of their friends and then every single one of their other friends. And then, you know, three generations of singles have gone by, you know, and they're 38 years old. And they're wondering, I'm never going to get married. And then God brings that perfect person into their life. And they think, oh, man. I'm so glad I didn't marry that jerk and that loser and that guy who was just, he was weird. And God has now protected me from my own naivety and has brought this perfect person into my life and I know this is my perfect compliment and they're right. So sometimes God is building your spouse Sometimes God is making your spouse into what they need to be to be your perfect complement. And you just need to be patient and trust in God's sovereignty to bring you that person. Now, you can apply these principles from the scriptures that we've looked at, but just trust God. Trust God. 
So Paul says, and back in our text, younger woman, younger widows, get married. If the opportunity arises, get married. Now second, Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.14, that they should bear children, literally have babies. Have babies. Why? This is a natural thing that happens when you get married. You're younger, you have babies. Okay, you have babies. What would that include? It include raising them, training them, and the fear and admonition of the Lord. Include every aspect of being a mom and all the things that go through having babies. We noticed as we looked earlier in the text that um, that uh, the widows indeed were to have a reputation of of raising up or bringing up children, and that's just kind of the normal pattern. But sometimes. God does not see fit to give people babies. Sometimes it is God's will that you not have children as a married couple. And I have seen people get very distraught about this. They fret and worry and drop out of ministry and go into big depression and, and um, get angry at God because, you know, God hasn't you know, given us children. Listen to Psalm 127.3. Now listen to this. Children are a gift from the Lord. Are gifts earned? No. Are gifts deserved? No. They are something that is given to you by someone else that are totally unmerited. That is what children are. And when they are given to you, it is a huge responsibility. A huge responsibility. Now, what would you think if, if, if I fretted and I worried and I dropped out of ministry because I couldn't spell good like some of you? Because I wasn't five foot seven. Because I couldn't sing good. You would say, snap out of it, you fool. What are you doing? Dropping out of ministry because you weren't five foot seven. God made you six foot four. Now you don't need a ladder when you change a light bulb. So you can't spell, you can synthesize truth good, so you can't sing, but you can teach. It would be ridiculous. And so it is equally ridiculous to fret and worry about what God has not given us. You know, some of you make more money than others. Some of you have health problems, some of you don't. Some of you have big families, some small. Some are married, some are not. All of these are gifts of the Lord, and God knows what's best for you, and you need to accept what His sovereign hand has given you. Because it is a gift. It is a gift. If God has chosen not to give you children, rejoice that you don't have to change a thousand poopy diapers. And rejoice that you can spend more time serving the Lord. And that maybe you can work more and give more to the Lord's work. Or maybe you can be a ministry to other people and watch their kids for them if you love kids. But so often we are so concerned about what God hasn't given us that we don't deserve that we don't capitalize on what he has given us. And singleness or being married with no kids is a great opportunity. I mean, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that it is way better to be single. Well, I would add that it is way better to be married with no children, which is a rare case. Why? Because, man, not only can you be a team and, and support each other, but it creates what is called a synergism where the, the, the addition of two parts is greater than just the addition. You, you, you actually are more than you could be individually separate. 
And man, that's a great gift. It is an incredible gift. And so we can't fret and worry because God has not given us or made us or whatever like somebody else. This is your will for your life, however God has put you now. And he may have spared you from great grief. And so you need to just say, God knows what's best. So, they are to get married, they are to bear children, and then, notice what the text says, they are to keep house. Now, this would almost be a curse word in our day, huh? I mean, if you went to a secular place, a college campus, and say, you know, God's role for women is to keep house, I mean, they would shoot you. And, and the reason is, is, is keeping house is, is such a low thing. Feminism has so corrupted our thinking that to, to do what God created you to do is thought of as evil. Where evil is thought of as good and good is thought of as evil. But this is what God says here. This word keep house means to keep your house clean, to keep it in order, to keep it a good environment for your husband and your children and to entertain strangers and be hospitable and have a good environment that uh, people can grow in the Lord. And the principle to learn from this text is that God has made the home and all of the responsibilities that come along with the home, the number one priority of any married woman. This is her priority. A few weeks back when I was preaching through the qualifications of uh, the widows indeed, a couple of women had come to me at different times and said, you know, you know, and they've got this string of kids in tow and hold still and quit doing that and, you know, take your finger out of your ear and... And they're, they're, they're saying, you know, we would just, I'd just love to get involved in ministry, but I have these kids, and, you know, I've been thinking, and, you know, when they get older, I might be able to do that. And I almost just laughed out loud. Get involved in ministry. You are in ministry. If you have children, they are your number one God-commanded ministry. And there is no higher ministry than that. You don't need to wait so you can get into ministry. You don't need to stoop so you can teach a Bible study or be on some committee. No. Your children are your ministry to nurture them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. They're going to be the next generation to evangelize them. And their thoughts expose the common yet erroneous view that being a mom and taking care of your house and children is not a ministry. But it is. You know, if you are a mom and you are taking care of your home and your husband, this is the highest form of godliness. And, I, and I'm not just trying to use hyperbole here. I'm telling you this is what the Word of God says. And this is what I mean by that. What is the greatest Christian? The greatest Christian, according to the Scriptures, is what? The servant. Is that not true? Well, you are in a ministry up to your eyeballs then if you're a mom, because that's what you are. You are nothing but a slave to your house and your children and your husband, and you just serve and serve and serve. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 23, 11 to the Pharisees who were grasping for power and position. He said, but the greatest among you shall be your servant. 
Listen to what he said in Mark chapter 9, verses 34 and 35, when the disciples were arguing about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He says, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. If you are a mom, your number one priority will be to serve. Are you to be like Christ? Yes, that's what godliness is, isn't it? What does Mark 10.45, the key verse of Mark, say? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. You are the most godly when you are the serving the most, and that's what being a mom is. That is what being the mom is. I mean, you know how it is. And, you know, some of the guys who don't know this need to take care of their kids for a while or somebody else's. You know, you get up in the morning, you make breakfast. Your kids eat it. You do the dishes. You make a snack. They eat it. You clean up. You make lunch. They eat it. You do the dishes. You get ready for a thing. You give them a snack. You clean up. You make dinner. They eat it. You do the dishes. That's just the beginning. All the while, the washing machine is always going. Clothes multiply like bacteria. I mean, they're just constantly, you know, they just, they just grow. You know, you keep doing laundry and it just keeps building up and building up and batch after batch. And you're always wondering where those socks are. You always have two or three matching socks that, you know, you hang up in that little place waiting for them to appear. And you have great faith that someday you will get all the laundry done and all socks will match. And pretty soon they get old there and start turning hard and then you know your washing machine breaks and the, the guy moves it out and there they are in the crack. <laughs> and in between all the urgent routines that are urgently calling upon you, then there's ironing. Oh, a task of a servant. Getting yourself ready so you don't look too scary. Trying to squeeze in quiet times, which are commanded. Pay bills, open mail, do things for your husband, get groceries, help hurting people, put band-aids on. Dealing with phone calls. Trying to evangelize your kids and instruct them always with the Word of God. Trying to model the Word of God. Trying to witness to the other kids in the neighborhood. And this is a normal slow day. Then there is those days when your car breaks down and there's a crisis. You have six kids, six sick kids, and you have to go to the doctor, and there's doctor's appointments, and you've got these kids who are crawling and whining and running around, and you have to get your car registered or the smog checked. And believe me, the easy thing to do is to go get a degree, pay somebody else to raise your kid, and have a job. That is the easy thing. But that is not the godly thing. That's not the God-sanctioned thing. God's Word is crystal clear that mothers have as their calling their home as a first priority. It doesn't mean they can't work outside the home, but they can never do that to the detriment of what God calls them to do. Listen to what Paul tells Titus in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Now, Titus was in a very similar position as Timothy. He was a young pastor in a young church, and Paul wrote to Titus to tell him what he was to teach his church so they would know what the godly priorities were, and this is what they said. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior. This is Titus 2, 3 through 5. Not malicious gossips or enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women, now listen to this, to love their husbands, love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, 
kind, being subject to their own husbands. Why? Because if you don't do that, this is what he says is going to happen. The word of God will be dishonored. Why? Because it commands you to do those things. Fourth, Paul gives a general directive at the end of verse 14 that widows do these, young widows do these things and live in this way so that the enemy will not given, be given an occasion to bring reproach. And this word occasion means to have a beachhead, to have a bunker set up. If a woman isn't obeying God's calling on her life, she sets up a bunker in her life. She sets up a beachhead by which Satan can fire at her family and the church. So he says, make sure they get married, bear children, keep house, so that they don't become those gossiping, idle, busybodies going about from house to house, speaking of things not proper to mention. So, they are not to have reproach, which means, just like elders, just like deacons we've seen already in the book, it's a word that means to have a character of such quality that you are Teflon, that no one's accusations can stick against you because of your sterling character. Paul speaking to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 1, verses 22 21 and 22, talks about how they were formerly alienated, engaged in evil deeds, but he tells them to be holy and blameless and beyond reproach, something all of us are to be. So what have we learned from the text here? One, you want to get married? Marry only a believer. Two, don't marry someone who has had an unbiblical divorce as a Christian. Three, don't marry someone who merely gives lip service to Christ, but who has a history of never walking with the Lord. Four, don't pursue a relationship with a person who you are pretty sure is a believer, but who isn't walking with the Lord. Five, make sure you find someone who has the same doctrinal conviction. Six, be the right person. Wives and moms, remember your home, your children, your husband are your number one priority. They are your greatest ministry. Don't feel ashamed of it. Never apologize for it. Husbands, make sure your wives are what they're supposed to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great text. What great things are here and much more could be said. Father, I just pray that your word would be fixed upon our hearts in such a way that we would see its urgency and its importance. We live in a society today when the whole world is just rebelling against your truth. And Father, the consequences of it are evident as families are broken and women are hurting and Marriages are falling apart and kids are suffering. Father, I especially pray this morning for single moms. They are great warriors trying to be both husbands and wives and providing for their families and just doing, keeping house. And Father, just the great burden that is upon them. May you grant them grace upon grace and build them up and encourage them and help them to make proper decisions. Bring someone into their life as they seek to be the right person, that they might find the right counterpart, that, Father, would be an encouragement and a blessing to them and give you glory and honor. We thank you for the things we have learned in this text. May we all apply them as we need to. In Christ's name, amen.